Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 209, Exploration. Now, I know what you're thinking. Last time we had the end of Henry VII and we sent him off with an affectionate wave and a glistening tear on the History of England cheek. So, Henry VII, that must mean that this week it's Henry VIII. After all, seven plus one generally makes eight, does it not? But in the words of a drinking game from my youth, the name of which escapes me for probably obvious reasons, you were wrong to go higher. I mean, not. Seven plus one does indeed make eight, and Henry VIII will indeed be our next monarch up to the Oki. But in the words of Chris Tarrant, we don't want to give you that. We're heading off to Compost Corner to hear about something else first. We're going to hear about the early days of European and English exploration. I'm sorry, by the way, for all the opaque references of this introduction. Don't quite know what came over me. It's a bit like the smell of bacon. The words brought on a rush of reminiscences. Now, I imagine you're huffing impatiently at this, or you may well be. You may be thinking, look, this is a history of England, not some history of Europe thing. Stay on message, would you? Everybody knows England was very late out of the blocks, indeed, in the world of international exploration. It's ages yet, until we get to the glory days of Elizabeth and Drake and Frobisher and all that sort of thing. You'll be doing a history of Scotland next, and then where will we be? Funny you should mention that. Because as it happens, I am doing a History of Scotland over on the members' podcast. Hurry, hurry, hurry to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and sign up. Well, I claim it's important. Exploration, that is. Mainly for the sake of context. Through the 16th century and quite early in the 16th century, the expanding global trade of Europe will shift the balance of power and the balance of European economies in increasingly dramatic ways. England will be affected intimately by this in terms of its relative wealth, if nothing else, which would be frankly embarrassingly feeble for quite a while. I mean, I blush on England's behalf. And England will want to take part in the whole thing too. And also, until the later 16th century, the story of England's contribution is, frankly pathetic, it's true, but there is a story, and I'd like you to know what it is. So, much of the narrative is pretty well known, so I won't go into enormous depth. But let's start with the very early days. And to start with the very early days, let's go to Portugal, nestled snugly on the western seaboard of the Iberian Peninsula. The start of it all was a slow, creeping process down the northwestern edge of the African continent. Big things often start in this way, do they not? I'm put in the mind of the story of the little Dutch boy with his finger in the seawall. Or that innocuous weed you see in the corner of the allotment one weekend, which by the time you return the following week, has turned into the finest collection of hardwood Amazonian rainforest imaginable. 
so Portugal had a long association with northwestern Africa. From the 13th century, Portuguese traders had developed a trading network supplying northwestern Europe, including England, with goods from Muslim North Africa. It wanted to extend this network, and it wanted a greater piece of the action of global trade. And so, in 1415, it took the dramatic step of sending out an army to conquer the great trading town of Quetta, on the southern side of the Straits of Gibraltar, North Africa. They succeeded, as it happens, and proceeded to behave in traditionally sensitive fashion to ingratiate themselves with the locals and integrate themselves into the local trade by such things as mm, converting the great mosque into a cathedral. Still, the same sort of thing happened to the Hagia Sophia, I suppose, in 1453. But without starting a sort of he-started-it-first debate, the point is that the capture of Quater didn't really achieve its objective because the Portuguese annoyed everyone so much they didn't really get access to the trade networks that they'd been targeting. Well, what trade, I hear you ask? Isn't all of this supposed to be about the fabulous and exotic riches of the East, spices, all that sort of thing? Well, I'm glad you asked that as well, because I learned a lot about this from a fab book that Amanda and Steve gave me for my birthday, called The Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan. It's a big, bold history of the world, and I commend it to you. Peter Frankopan talks about Timbuktu. Early Muslim writers called West Africa the land of gold. Malian traders called the Wangara crossed the Sahara from West Africa to Egypt, accessing a network of trading bases and oases, and cities flourished on the route, just as they did on the more famous Silk Road, and one of those cities was Timbuktu. The Arabic traveller Ibn Battuta wrote about the Malian king's magnificent court, of its king, Mansa Musa, and his astounding wealth. Although Ibn Battuta's works weren't well known in the Christian world at this time, nonetheless the stories of all this gold and wealth trickled back into Europe. There's a famous map from the 14th century called the Catalan Atlas, and it has a picture of a king that was supposed to be Mansa Musa, and under it was the legend, So abundant is the gold to be found in this country that he is the richest and most noble king in the land. But the Sahara, the Sahara was for the Europeans absolutely impenetrable. So Portugal tried to go round it down the coast of northwest Africa, but they only went so far, and that seemed equally sterile. But then in the early 15th century, the creeping began. The trick was a model that would become standard for the early stages of European expansion, creating a network of trading bases. European sailors were not great fans of the deep blue sea, they preferred to be within a day or two's sight of land. The idea of the long voyages of discovery that would characterise the likes of Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama and John Cabot were very slow to catch on, and only when the purpose was clear. No one really knew what was going on over the seas anyway, if anything, and the fantastical maps really didn't help, unsurprisingly, since nobody had been there. But then Portugal made a series of discoveries in the Atlantic, the islands of Madeira were discovered in 1419 and the Azores not far behind them in 1427. Castilians, or Spanish you might say, had also discovered the Canary Islands. So now there was a base for ships and traders. A place to revictual or an entrepot to bring your goods to for onward shipping. Now, no story of the Age of Discovery would be complete, of course, without mention of Prince Henry the Navigator, a younger son of the King of Portugal who lived from 1394 to 1460. 
Henry the Navigator is one of those figures in history who's been significantly bigged up and then more recently debunked. The stories of his centre of technological excellence, with cartographers all beavering away and explorers beating up after his door, appear to be largely nonsense. But nonetheless, he certainly did sponsor voyages. He did commission maps. He provided support for the network of private entrepreneurs to grow that would eventually deliver the trade empire he craved, though some time after his death. And so onward went the Portuguese creeping, with a fortress and trading warehouse on the coast of modern-day Ghana, and then by 1470 to the island Sao Tome all the way down the African coast by Central Africa. In 1488, a Portuguese explorer reached the southern tip of Africa and went round it. His name was Bartholomew Diaz. He had a torrid time of it. Miserable, the lad. The weather was just not great, the sort of stuff that makes you light a fire in the grate, break out the cocoa, put on some extra thick socks and settle down to watch the DVD of the World Rugby Final of 2003 for the 11th billionth time. So Diaz called the Southern Cape the Cape of Storms. His boss, King John, was not impressed with that name. Seriously, Cape of Storms wasn't going to encourage anyone to put away that DVD, get off their backsides and create a global trading empire that would transform the world economy, would it? So he called it the Cape of Good Hope instead. Marketing and branding, it would appear, are far from modern phenomena. All this sounds very peaceful and nice, but Portugal did even in these early days face a rival. Castile was spitting feathers at the idea of Portugal taking such a lead. Now, if you'd happened to be wandering along the beach in 1478 near Almina on the coast of Ghana, you might have witnessed what has been described as the first European colonial war, a fierce naval battle between Castile and Portugal. Though in common with many colonial battles to come, it was actually all part of a wider land war in the Iberian Peninsula, the War of Castilian Succession. But the winner of this particular naval battle was Portugal, but both recognised they couldn't afford to fight about all of this, that the world was big enough for the two of them. And so the result was the Treaty of Alcacovath, which essentially gave the Castilians what they wanted on land, and the Portuguese what they wanted at sea. The African coast was theirs. At this point, I should spend a bit more time, I think, talking about why everyone was so keen to be expanding out of Europe, trade-wise. Gold in Timbuktu was one good reason, but was that enough? When I was but an tiny lad, well, when I was a lumbering, awkward 15-year-old, though not spotty, I have to tell you, I had a history teacher called Collingwood, I think. There's something slightly wrong with that. I forget his first name, but he had a beard. He was an enthusiastic sort of bloke with a level of enthusiasm that carried him through the despair of trying to teach adolescent males. And one of his techniques for us was called the titchy-pick. The idea was that to help you remember a critical concept, you would draw a titchy-pick in the margin of your exercise book. And I have to say, a very simple and yet effective technique it was. And one of those titchy-picks was drawn to represent the old and famous adage, God, gold and glory. You could start the story with any of these three, actually, and they interweave, of course. But let's start with a big one. Gold. For centuries, Europeans had thirsted for the fabulous riches and goods of the East. Silks, ceramics, but mainly, of course, spices. Now, the old story was that spices were much sought after to cover up the taste of rotting meat, given the lack of refrigeration and all that. This is almost certainly utter twaddle. Anyone rich enough to buy spices was rich enough to find themselves fresh meat. 
anyone poor enough to have to put up with over-the-top meat would have been incapable of buying expensive spices. No, mainly people wanted spices for the same reason Abigail wanted her party, or because the wonderful monosodium glutamate had not yet been invented and spices made your supper delicious and tasty, or indeed for their medicinal properties. Leading the league table of desire for spices were pepper, nutmeg, cloves, frankincense, ginger, sandalwood, cardamom and turmeric, all of which had been sought after since Roman times. And it wasn't just for food. I discovered that cinnamon was good for the heart, stomach and head and in curing epilepsy and palsy, which might explain why people insist on ruining apple pie with the stuff. Tell me, why do people do that? Why mess about with the delicious taste of apple by putting cinnamon in it? Plus, it gets in the way of the lumpy custard, without which, of course, no apple pie is complete or even edible. Anyway, I digress. Good to get that off the chest, though. Cardamom oil soothed the intestine, and everyone likes a soothed intestine, and also, apparently, it helped reduce flatulence. Ha! Huh. I've been subject to more than the odd flatule over the years, so that's a handy tip. Talking of tips, ginger was supposed also to have additional properties to boot. This is serious history, folks, not purient tittle-tattle. So I tell you this purely in the interest of historical inquiry and the advancement of knowledge. One Arabic writer wrote a chapter called Prescriptions for Increasing the Dimensions of Small Members and for Making Them Splendid. Okay. The idea was to rub a mixture of honey and ginger into the private part in question. Important at this point not to get confused about your spice and go for pepper rather than ginger, I would imagine. Anyway, the impact was supposed to be so impressive that the man's sexual partner would, and I quote for historical accuracy, object to him getting off her again. Please don't try this at home, ladies and gentlemen, unless strictly in the spirit of serious historical inquiry, of course. OK, so all of this is well known. But spices like this have been reaching Europe, as I say, since Roman times at least. So why the big kerfuffle now? Well, one answer was simply margin. The route across the Silk Road was long and arduous. And along the way, a certain amount of, you know, grease had to be applied to the wheels of commerce in the form of multiple customs dues and no doubt judicious bribes. Just imagine if you could get the stuff direct from the wholesaler. You'd make an absolute bundle. But another reason was the changing political situation in the East. Traditionally, Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Empire had been the great place where the Silk Road met the West, where the merchants of Venice had gathered for their pound of flesh. But with the rise of the Ottoman Empire, new ports had opened for trade and Constantinople had withered until that too fell, of course, in 1453. And as Ottoman power grew, the Turks controlled more and more potential alternative outlets. In 1517, Egypt fell to the Ottomans. When he heard the news, Pope Leo X was not a happy bunny, not a happy bunny at all. Now that the most atrocious Turk has captured Egypt and Alexandria and the whole Eastern Empire, he will cover not just Sicily and Italy, but the whole world. This would in these days be considered racist, of course, but Ottoman supremacy had the effect of raising prices in the West. You don't develop one of the largest and most sophisticated empires the world had ever seen by being a dipstick. And the Ottomans were no dipsticks. They knew they could now charge more to their Christian rivals for the privilege of trading with them for the spices they so desperately wanted. As early as 1428, the Ottomans had a monopoly of pepper 
and the prices had duly shot up. In 1488, the Sultan proposed a particularly steep rise in spice prices and when the Venetian merchants objected, he locked them up for three days to push it through. And at the same time, the Ottomans throughout the 15th and 16th centuries strengthened their trading networks throughout Asia. But of course, the phrase, the atrocious Turk, not only reflected the casual racism of past ages, it also reflected religious conflict. As Ottoman power grew, 15th century was a time of increasing paranoia and conflict between Christian and Muslim. Castile was at the forefront of this paranoia, as evidenced in the final expulsion in 1492 of the Moors in Granada by Queen Isabella. This is a major theme of European history right through the 15th, 16th and 17th century. And it wasn't made up. Just because Europe was paranoid didn't mean the Ottomans weren't out to get them, because they were. Ottoman expansion led them to threaten Western Mediterranean, led them to the crushing Christian defeat at Mohash in 1526, and would lead them to the very walls of Vienna as late as 1683. So that brings us to God, of course, though there's another major element of gold I'll come back to. This was all partly about finding a route to trade that was not mediated by the infidel. But it was also about competing with Islam, finding allies against them. And so Henry the Navigator wrote to the Pope that he wanted to reach, quote, the Indians, who it is said, worship the name of Christ, so that we can persuade them to come to the aid of the Christians against the Saracen. The Europeans wanted to find these allies in a world that seemed increasingly against them. It was a matter of some confusion, incidentally. After all, the church had been telling everyone for years that God was almighty and everywhere, and yet here was Islam waxing so dominant. And when the Christians reached Asia, they assumed that, of course, they would be Christians there. After all, God was all-powerful and omnipresent. And so when Vasco da Gama met Hindu temples, he at first assumed that they had to be Christian temples. After all, why wouldn't they be? All of this led, of course, to a certain amount of questioning of the teachings of the church, though nowhere near as much as you might expect. There was also the legend of Prester John to spur the Europeans on. Somewhere out there, probably Africa, a rich and magnificent king, head of a vast and Christian empire, a descendant of one of the three magi that took the baby Jesus' B-Day presents, a king that would help recover the Holy Land for Christendom. And then, of course, it was not just the chance to gain allies. It was the chance to win over and evangelise the undiscovered inhabitants of the world. At this distance, it's sometimes difficult to understand the fervour of the religious drive and determination to win the world for Christendom. Before he left in 1492 to sail the ocean blue, Christopher Columbus himself had spent just as much time planning a return to win back the Holy Land as he had planning his voyage. It would in the future cause much fury between those religious who saw with fury the chaos, death and destruction the conquistadors caused. In 1559, a senior Jesuit wrote furiously that settlers in America failed to understand that the purpose was not so much to obtain gold or silver as it was to glorify the Catholic faith and save souls. OK, gold, God, our third G was glory. Now, I have a very good friend with whom I have at many points in my life played the game of brag, the precursor of poker, as it happens. This good friend would regularly roll me over in the most outrageous way by pure aggression of his betting and play. Hope he's not listening, of course. It'll go to his head. But 
These men that opened up the potential for these new empires were the most outrageous bunch of bluffers, thugs, and frankly, told porcupines in such abundance that it beggars belief. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let us take our Christopher Columbus, for example. Columbus was utterly convinced that when he landed in America, he had found the short way to Asia. It reminds me of the birth of my first child. For some reason, I had convinced myself by judicious application of old wives' tales that this was going to be a boy. Didn't care, I should stress, either girl or boy, as long as they supported the Leicester Tigers. It'd be fine. But as I stared down at our firstborn in those first few minutes, there was a moment of confusion, because obviously it was a boy, I knew it was a boy, but there was an absence of bits took me a moment to recover and realise what had happened. Well, Columbus never recovered. He was utterly confused by what he saw and the natives that he met. They were not what he expected at all. So he just fibbed, for want of a better word. His fabulously popular letters confidently told everyone that there was gold all over the place, great mines, countless spices. There were not. Not a sausage. Well, there might have been sausages, but you know what I mean, figure of speech thing. In 1498, he did actually strike it lucky and find fantastically wealthy oyster beds. But look, it was a stroke of luck. Many of these first explorers were soldiers. They went for riches. Cortes himself told the Aztecs, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart that can only be cured with gold. But they also came from a society that had for centuries glorified warriors as the leaders of society and they went also for that glory and in its pursuit they were utterly ruthless before i go ahead with that bit let me go back a step we left portugal creeping down the coast the end game was a route to asia fine but you might wonder why in the 15th century they didn't give up in the face of an absence of gold and this was because they found another form of gold the sickening kind of gold that would fuel colonisation, they found slavery. The African slave trade in the 15th century exploded, driven in the early days by the demand for slaves in Portugal specifically. Now this came as something of a shock to me, given that out and out slavery was by and large certainly frowned on by the church and not common in Western Europe at all, though of course serfdom was a kind of semi-slavery. And of course, European countries had participated actively in slavery, for example, selling captured Muslims to Egypt. The Portuguese took to the idea of having slaves with some enthusiasm. By the mid-16th century, it's estimated that 10% of the population of several regions and cities, including Lisbon, were made up of slaves. There was little moral objection. At most, some of the chroniclers expressed sympathy with the suffering of the slaves, and the crown certainly saw no reason to prevent it, because they live at a tax of one-fifth. Of course, I simply don't have the space to go into the intricacies and detail which such a subject deserves, but it's an amazing example of double standards and a kind of two-brained attitudes. So, 
When one trader asked the Crown Prince for a licence to equip a slaving mission, he approved. But he not only approved, but, quote, he at once commanded banners to be made with the cross of the Order of Jesus Christ. So it appears that both state and God approved the concept of slavery. Anyway, so further and further down the coast, the Portuguese pushed, financed by the slave trade, looking for more and more territories to raid. As they did, they came across people who'd never met them and were curious, again and again, as they were met by often welcoming chiefs and village elders, slavers butchered the villagers on the spot. In the early 16th century, earth met sky in a way. In Central and Southern America, there's the absolutely extraordinary story, of course, of the subjugation of the Aztec Empire in Mexico between 1519 and 21. Once again, I didn't have the space to tell that story, but I just want to note the impact of the Western arrival on the local population. The populations of the Caribbean and the Americas were devastated. They were devastated by war, the brutality of the invaders, but also famously by disease. To give you one example, the population of the Taino people in the Caribbean fell from 500,000 to less than 2,000 within decades of Columbus's arrival. Mortality rates soared. People fled to get away from the disease, there were fewer and fewer to plant crops, and so famine took more. And then as silver began to be discovered, and mines like the enormous Potosi mines were opened, the demand for people to work plantations and mines was insatiable, and the local population was just no longer there. And thus, the slave trade grew and grew and grew, and the money fuelled further colonisation and further exploration, and so it went on. From early in the 16th century, gold and silver from the Americas became a trickle, then a flood, then a tsunami. By 1551, Charles V was told that this should indeed be called a golden age. Trade with Asia had similarities with the Americas, but also some pretty major differences. The Portuguese finally reached India through Vasco da Gama in 1498. By this stage, Spain and Portugal had neatly worked things out together through the Treaty of Tordesillas with the help of the Pope. This divided the world in two. Everything east was for Portugal, everything west was for Spain. Sweet. Later on, when they got all the way around the world, a similar line was drawn in the Pacific. The similarities between the Americas and Asia lay in the utter brutality with which the Europeans inserted themselves into the existing trade networks. One Arabic writer describes the burning by da Gama of a ship of men, women and children as the Portuguese watched. As they went, the Portuguese took with them that template that they'd used in their advance down the African coast, a network of trading stations and fortresses. But they faced a very, very different situation. They faced a mature market, which had no need for their trade, or at least initially. I found this a really interesting point. Western Europe, in terms of the world economy, was absolutely nowhere. Seriously, we've become accustomed to the story of the Industrial Revolution and all that, and the supremacy of the Western economy. But back then, China was far and away the world's largest economy, and it was a sophisticated and advanced one at that. So when de Gama arrived, he simply had nothing to sell they wanted, except silver. And so initially the Portuguese found it very hard to insert themselves into trade works, which already worked really well without them. 
Over time also, the process became very different to that of the Americas. The Europeans were forced to work much more collaboratively. They couldn't simply impose themselves in the same way as they had in America. Now then, well, you might well ask me then, well, how did the Europeans manage it, especially in Asia? Ruthlessness is one, but Islamic traders and Ottomans were equally capable of brutality. But there were three other reasons. One is the power of private enterprise. China had enormous trading fleets of ships of much greater size than the Europeans, so typically early European ships could carry about 100 tonnes or less. In China, their enormous trading junks could reach 1,600 tonnes. But all of these fleets in China were under the central command of the state, and they simply didn't prioritise such exploration. And after all, why should they? There was nothing out in Western Europe that they wanted to go and get and to trade with. A second reason was naval technology. Now I wanted to try lots of naval technology out on you, but I won't. So just very briefly then. The use of the Latin sail, the triangular sail, had been adopted in the Mediterranean from probably an Arabic design. The Latin rigging gave an enormous advantage in flexibility because you were able to sail close to the wind or even into the wind. But equally it did have disadvantages because it took many more men to manage a vessel using the Latin rigging and often that kind of rigging meant ships were rather underpowered. The alternative tradition were ships powered by square sails, fantastic and sturdy with a following wind, but unable to sail close to the wind. So, some bright spark said, well, let's mix it up, let's have a bit of both. And the history of world exploration had its workhorse. With multiple masts, with both square and latin sails, the ships of the 15th and 16th century ran on a scale from the relatively small caravel to the much larger carrack. None of the expeditions would rely entirely on the caravel, but it's this ship which formed the backbone of exploration. They are really titchy-tiny. 100 tonnes would be a relatively large one, and it's really small. If you're ever in London, go and see the Golden Hind in Southwark. Seriously, no room to swing a cat. Well, actually, the cat did get swung reasonably frequently, but again, you know what I mean. I should also talk about compasses and astrolabes, improvements in navigation which helped but it's worth noting that navigation was still pretty hit and miss there was no way of measuring longitude much relied on the use of rudders of pilots and precious experience these were the log books based on dead reckoning and the precious experience jealously guarded because it was these that unlocked the secrets of exploration and finally the third reason i should mention military technology the use of cannon and firearms in particular gave Europeans a superiority they exploited extremely effectively in Asia as well as the Americas. I am conscious of rushing, sorry about that, but I figured two episodes on exploration would be too much. Before I move to England, let me briefly mention a couple of the impacts of all of this. One is that over the course of the 16th century, the balance of economic power and therefore to some degree political power really shifted. The Venetians were frankly pooing themselves. They knew that this had the power to destroy their supremacy based on a monopoly of access to the wealth of the East through the Ottomans and Constantinople. In fact, they fought back pretty effectively. The demand for the goods of the East were insatiable and so large 
that the traditional trade routes continued also to thrive for some time. But Spain, from being a really pretty irrelevant power in the scheme of things by the mid-16th century, would be the arbiter of Europe. England, on the other hand, looked even poorer by comparison. Meanwhile, another impact was that Europe was flooded with silver bullion. This fuelled a trade boom, but it also fuelled inflation in the second half of the 16th century that would create great wealth for some, utter poverty for many, many more. I have left very little space for England, sorry about that, but hey, the story is really one of missing out, as it happens. It's faintly ironic, is it not, that the country that would become known for its global empire and trade was absolutely nowhere in the race for global trade at this point. But our friend Henry VII did make an early effort. John Cabot, as he is known over here, was probably Genoese and probably therefore his name was Cobotto or something similar. John was clearly an experienced seaman and he had an idea. Look, he said to himself, England is right at the end of the Silk Road and that would mean that all those goods that got there would be even more expensive than in his own homeland. So maybe he should go to the English court and try out his luck. Why not pitch the idea of finding a passage to the Indies by a northwestern route? After all, Columbus was telling everyone he'd found the Indies already. His idea was a good one and Henry was not blind to the opportunity. And so in 1496, Henry VII granted letters patent to Cabot to go out and discover and anything he found he could exploit, as long as he paid one-fifth to the English crown, of course. The classic contract encouraging all those Portuguese and Spanish was exactly the same as we had in England. So actually, that's not that late. Henry VII started on time. It's Henry VIII that messes it up. But there was a problem. According to international law, brokered by the Pope at Tordesillas, the world was now divided up by Spain and Portugal. No mention of a share for England, or indeed France, actually, for that matter. But no matter, Henry hadn't signed up to that treaty. But horrified letters sped back from Spanish ambassadors to Spain, and a protest duly arrived from Queen Isabella of Castile when they heard that Henry had encouraged Cabot to go and find discoverers. These protests, of course, were duly ignored in the finest tradition of European diplomacy. Cabot set off from Bristol in the west of England in one little ship, the Matthew, which was about 50 tonnes capacity on the classic seagoing caravel lines. I thought I should slip in one brief mention of the northern European shipbuilding tradition, which had produced ships which were, and I quote, buoyant and tubby. For some reason this tickled me. I would like to be buoyant and tubby. I've got the second one cracked at least. Working on the first one. Cabot discovered, if that's the right word, the fine country of Newfoundland, making landfall on the 24th of June 1497. It is thought he was the first to do so, though it's not 100% clear. It could be that fishermen who are more pragmatic souls and not giving to shouting about their discoveries to potential competitors may have been there before because Newfoundland was and is, of course, home to the great fishing banks, which for many decades afterwards would be what made ships follow Cabot out west. On his return, Cabot made the same sort of claims about the fantastic riches to be had as Columbus had, though he also had absolutely no evidence, but even less evidence than Columbus. But Henry was impressed. He gave him £10 as his reward, 
and more importantly commissioned a second voyage. In his commission, Henry specified that he should found a colony and establish trade so that London could become, quote, a more important market for spices than Alexandria. Bless him, Henry also made a specification in his commission that would have horrified the likes of Columbus and Cortes. He specified that Cabot should only take good men with him and not tolerate any that would despoil the natives or rape the native women. Henry rises further in my estimation. After his first voyage, Cabot was a sensation in London, and for a while he basked in the glory and fame, spending his ten quid freely. A commentator at the time talked of Cabot swaggering around in silk, while the people of London, quote, ran after him like madmen. The second time, Cabot got more backing. The merchants of Bristol dug deep in their pockets. One of these backers, as it happens, was a man called Richard America. Now, I know that the general view is that America was named after the writing of Amerigo Vespucci. This is not the view in Brazil. In Brazil, they are quite clearly that it is, in fact, Richard America in recognition of his support for Cabot's voyage. I lay that before you, gentlefolk, for your consideration. Anyway, off Cabot sailed with his small flotilla, eager with expectation of glory and riches. And never returned. Nothing. Not a sausage. Zip. And that is literally all we know. After that, the Portuguese re-established their rights and most of the exploration to the northwest of the American continent came from them, the Portuguese. Including, I learned, a husbandman called João Fernandes. The word for husbandman in Portuguese is Lavrador, hence the name, apparently, for the country of Labrador. Huh. That's all you get, really. John Cabot did have a son, Sebastian, who claimed to have made several voyages and indeed tried to claim discoveries that were in fact his father's. In fact, it appears he made up most of his claims but managed to make a very comfortable living out of them, which is nice work if you can get it, I guess. Henry VIII, it would seem, was not keen on exploration. He had different fish to fry. And so we have to wait for the Virgin Queen for our excitement in the Department of Colonisation and Expansion. OK, brief bit of housekeeping already quite clear that writing the equivalent of six episodes a month when you combine the history of England with the Shedcast is just beyond me given I've got a three day a week job at the moment so I'm going for the super complicated formula of five episodes in a two month period for the history of England Shedcast of course are sacrosanct so next week we finally get to Henry VIII then the week after that will be a rest week I look forward to telling you all about a king described by a particular contemporary as the bloody beast that drank the guiltless blood. Meanwhile, thanks for your comments and support. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.